Today I'm with David Leaf, who is a Rural Generalist, former RAF Medical Officer, Timor Veteran and Survivor of a 2004 military helicopter crash in Timor. David's an advocate for veterans' health in Australia and I'm really pleased to have you on to chat about all of that. Uh, welcome to Care Under Fire. Thanks for having me on. Tell me, first of all, about your younger years and what inspired you to study medicine? Oh, that's quite a lot. Uh, younger. That's quite a long time ago now. Um, so uh, I grew up in Sydney and uh, went to high school here and um, was either going to be a fighter pilot with the RAF or a doctor and um, didn't quite get through the selection process to be a pilot um, and uh, at the same time was offered a place at uh, the University of Newcastle uh, to study medicine. And um, I don't regret the uh, the choice that I was given at the time and just sort of went with it. And worked for four years in the Newcastle area after graduating from medicine as a doctor in hospitals. And then um, one day saw an ad to be a, to uh, join a practice up at uh, Port Stephens. And it uh, turns out I was the only applicant. And the thing that attracted me to it was that, uh, this, is, this is 1994 now, the, that I had the ability to work in the general practice, which I was training to be a GP, but also had the ability to work as a VMO at the local hospital at Nelson Bay, where we could uh, be on call for emergencies after hours and also admit patients in into the hospital under our cells for various conditions. And that was very appealing to me. I'd spent four years in the hospital system um, developing a range of skills uh, that I want to use, and um, this really appealed to me uh, in terms of generalism. So I could see kids, I could see adults, I could see geriatrics, I could uh, see pregnant women, I could uh, look after palliative care patients myself, and uh, uh, it was um, what we now call uh, rural generalist medicine at its best. And so I worked up in Port Stephens, Nelson Bay Way for 10 years. Yeah. And I imagine that rural generalist skill set would have been super desirable when it come time to join the RAF as well. It, it was. And there's a funny little story attached to that. So um, in 1999, uh, I'd already been a uh, army reservist, army reservist from 96 onwards and had done all the, the courses and the hack work and gone out in the, with the battalion infantry battalion for a couple of years um, and uh, looked after their sortos and their strain groins and done fitness assessments and spent nights, many nights in the bush in the cold as an infantry officer, infantry medical officer. And um, then one thing led to another and because I was in Nelson Bay and the, the, the infantry battalion was actually based down in Sydney, every fortnight I had to drive down to Sydney on a Tuesday night after work. Um, for about four or five hours to be with the main body of the battalion in uh, Pimble. But uh, on some weekends, I think it was about one weekend a month, we'd go out often to Singleton or other places or Holsworthy for deployments. And it was, it was actually a lot of commitment uh, in, in time and driving and time out of practice. Um, and one thing led to another and I uh, ended up uh, transferring to the Air Force in 1999, January 99. Um, because there was a tactical fighter base just down the road from me at Williamtown. And uh, 
the infantry battalion needed to use the medical facility at the RAF base one weekend, and I ended up um, becoming uh, good friends and colleagues with the senior medical officer at Williamtown. And uh, eventually, um, I transferred to the Air Force earlier that year. Um, and within a few months, I'd done several interstate courses in aviation medicine, rot rotary wing and fixed wing. Um, and uh, I was a fully fledged RAF um, medical officer. And uh, also the RAF offered uh, recognition of specialist qualifications, which the army did not. So I was promoted to squadron leader because I had two primary care fellowships. The army wasn't and still isn't, I believe, doing that at this time. Anyway, uh, I was a member of a, a uh, uh, internet chat group called ADF Docs, and there was hundreds of them nationwide. It's a bit different now, I think, but in those days you could put your twenty cents worth up on on the billboard, and people would comment on it, and it's all sorts of interesting discussions came came up. So in August of that year, ninety nine, uh, the um, deployment to Timor Interfet. Uh, started to kick off. Well, it would start to wind up and eventually the first flight went in, I think it was September. And we uh, pre-existing medical officers, especially the GPs, uh, were superseded on the deployments in some instances by uh, people who had uniforms thrown at them. They were anaesthetists and surgeons and intensive care specialists and things. And they were rapidly inducted into the uh, military, promoted often well beyond me um, and us and deployed um, and a group of my colleagues and I were a bit dirty about that um, and um, uh, because we had you know been in uniform for years doing uh, service uh, which was by no means glamorous but very necessary um, and uh, I put up a post saying uh, actually a rural generalist, uh, so a GP with advanced skills in a particular discipline, whether it's like emergency medicine like me or anaesthetics like some of my colleagues, were the best bang for your bucks. Yeah. Uh, on a and because you can't take a specialist in every single field with you on a deployment. There's just not enough room. Um, and um, we were trained in, we are still trained in emergency medicine, um, psychiatric triage, we can look after sore ears, we can do minor procedures and things. Anyway, I put this post up and uh, within minutes, I seem to recall, there was dozens of posts howling for my head saying that, you know, if, if we need someone to treat sore throats, we'll, we'll take an ENT surgeon, but nobody really needs an ENT on a deployment. Uh, one or two surgeons uh, who shall remain nameless said, that they had been GPs once because they'd done a couple of shifts after hours in a practice while they were trying to earn some extra money during their surgical training. So they know all about general practice. And um, while I was watching these uh, messages come in, ping, 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 uh, and then distracted by the patients. Finally, there was a message that came through from um, a guy called Tony Austin, who was the head of Air Force Health at the time. Himself a GP, but a, uh, I think he was a group captain at that point. Uh, who came in and said, um, "Well, to the group, he said, actually, David's right." He said, "In the history of uh, ADF health over the last sixty years, he quoted back to Korea, 
the vast majority of patients who get sick on deployment uh, are uh, taken out by illness, psychiatric conditions, rather than battlefield injuries. And um, that shut them all up. Um, and I thought, oh, well, cool, I've had a little win there. And then he sent me a private email and said, okay, David, here's where you uh, put your neck on the line and put your money where your mouth is. I've got a job for you in Timor coming up. Do you want to go? Uh, and he described a, a five, six-week uh, deployment for me. Uh, it was a few months after that, but it was to cover changeover in staff. And so there it was. I'd been invited to go to a war zone um, uh, by uh, by being someone who was mouthy enough to point out <laughs> the uh, benefit of having a rural generalist on uh, deployment. And it, it was actually um, borne out with a couple of clinical stories I can tell later. And, and I'm definitely not promoting my own skills here. It was more just pointing out the difference between having uh, what we call single organ doctors available on a deployment and someone who takes a bit more of a general approach. Well, absolutely. We know that disease non-battle injury has always been the highest proportion of presentations from all wars and especially Timor being peacekeeping op with some more kinetic mm. activity as well. So, yeah. And so to have a doctor that can then step up and do that ED work and, and be versatile but keep the troops in the fight, essential. Specialists are expensive and they do... A great job but they require a lot of support too to be able to do their job so <laughs> there was another incident where one of our soldiers uh jumped into dilly harbour to retrieve a volleyball and a few days later he developed a very severe ear infection which put him on his back in dilly hospital in the military hospital and being the ame doctor i was asked to consult on getting him back to darwin because the doctor that had been uh, appointed to consult on him in the military hospital was a neurosurgeon. And I suppose the thinking was neurosurgeon, head, ear, close enough. Um, and the neurosurgeon felt that this guy had a severe otitis media and middle ear infection and that the man's pain probably meant that he needed to have his eardrum lanced and pus strained out, which, if that was the case, would pr provide a specific aeromedical evacuation problem because of the pressure changes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I came and had a look at him, had a look in the ear. Um, I'd seen probably thousands of these before in my civilian practice up the coast in a holiday town where I did a lot of diving medicine. Um, and it was just a swimmer's ear. It was now it's external. Yeah, right. And um, uh, it was a Tuesday, I remember, uh, and I said to them, well, the next scheduled flight is until Thursday. How about you change his antibiotics and put an ear wick in with some antibiotics on it? And I'll come back and fly mad on Thursday. Anyway, so I turned up on the Thursday to pick him up to take him to the plane and he was gone. He was discharged back to his unit because he had the right treatment. So we avoided a discharge or a uh, transfer back to Australia for, for that. So yeah. it was kind of, uh, and I'm definitely not singing my own praises here, but it was most GPs would be able to pick it up and, and hmm. treat it and uh, restore the guy back to the bench. So tell me about your role over there. You had an AME role, you had a humanitarian role on that first trip. Uh, were you based out of the hospital in Dili or were you kind of somewhere so else? So the first trip um, I was 
based in Camaro at the airport. And my role was actually supposed to be exclusively air medical evacuation. And so that involved um, uh, tactical uh, in and out of, in and around Timor back to, back to Dili uh, in various uh, airframes, whatever was available. Uh, and then strategic back to Australia. Um, so forward tactical within Timor and then um, strategic back to Australia if someone needed to be in, uh, um, uh, evacuated out. So there was two doctors, two nurses and a medic, and we just took it on in turns, day and day off to be either forward or strategic. Yeah, look, uh, I was reasonably busy. I probably did three or four missions a week, maybe less. I can't quite remember now. It's 23 years ago, but it wasn't very busy and we had a lot of downtime. Um, and I was specifically forbidden to do what we call primary care at the airport. So the uh, Air Force members at the airport um, at Comoro, of which there was quite a lot, and quite a lot of international military people, were supposed to, for their medical needs, go to the um, UN hospital, which was a couple of kilometres down, down the road into town. Um, and yet uh, we were still pretty busy, uh, pretty, pretty bored, I mean. Um, so a couple of kilometres in the other direction was a big school and uh, part of the uh, unit that I was attached to, uh, I had a padre uh, who technically worked for me, although I very rarely saw him because he was out and about. Um, he told me about this school and uh, we worked out that there was probably it was probably very easy for me, even if I was on call for four AMEs, which need the, I think it's 10 or 15 minute callback requirement. Um, I could be over there and just carry a phone or a radio and respond to, respond to the calls because we had everything already impacted and ready to go. So we started doing that and uh, it was terrific. Um, the nuns at the school would um, prepare the, the patients and the kids and we'd take um, whatever supplies we could be by a bottle or sell. Uh, a lot of our stuff was um, surplus or going out of date, so we would take it with us, creams and items and pills and Panadols and things. Um, and then I discovered at the uh, airport also that the fireys, the Air Force fireys, who were based at the end of the runway, um, had uh, started their own little humanitarian clinic with some kids uh, who backed onto the, uh, they were on the other side of the fence, backing onto the airfield. There was a little village there. And the fireys had dug a trench under the fence that was only big enough for a little kid, one at a time, to come in. Uh, and the, the fireys had pretty good first aid training. And they, they would set up a little um, chair and a table and the kids would come under and have their legs uh, cuts cleaned and dressed and scraped. And the fireys were teaching them how to um, uh, clean a wound and teaching the older kids how to look after the little kids. Um, and I just happened to go for a walk one day and came upon this makeshift clinic. Um, so I um, uh, offered our services as well. So they, they, were, they were delighted with that. And um, there was, for example, one little girl who had, uh, I think she was about five, and her father had uh, been killed in the uh, uh, troubles around about the time of the referendum. And... Um, her mother was, uh, as far as I could tell from the translation, her mother had schizophrenia or something. They said she was crazy. And so she was a bit of an outcast in the village. Um, but also she had uh, lesions all over her face. Uh, and I looked at them 
twice uh, I took a double take and, and it was in Patigo, which in Australia you would never see it as, as bad as that, not in the urban community, probably in the First Nations community occasionally, but even then. Um, and uh, uh, I gave her a course of oral antibiotics and taught the kids how to dress the wounds. And within 24 hours, uh, her face completely healed up, 100%. She started smiling and um, uh, we uh, the, the fireys had um, taken a whip round and uh, bought all the kids thongs because otherwise they were running around in the, in the village with no shoes on and getting foot, foot injuries and things. Um, so these sort of things were going on in the middle of also um, uh, AME operations as well. Um, that would have been incredibly satisfying, though, to be able to simple fixes for people that have very limited access to healthcare and really make you feel like you're having an impact in that community. It was very satisfying for the fireys, uh, myself, the padre, the nuns, um, my medics and nurses. Um, uh, we've got our rat catcher, sorry, our environmental health uh, officer uh, involved as well. Um, yeah. And even just teaching kids how to clean a wound um, or prevent a wound um, was fantastic. I think we even vaccinated one or two of them for tetanus. I can't remember now. We certainly were still doing uh, aeromedical evacuations in and around uh, or, or in all areas of, of Timor at the time as well. Mm. Mm. So here's a con- slightly controversial question, I guess, but did Defence do the right thing taking tactical AME off the RAF and giving it to Army and just keeping the RAF in the strap? AME space? Look, I, I don't think it matters, to be honest, so long as the doctor and medic who at whatever um, uniform they wear have the right training, whether it's Army or Air Force, um, I don't think it matters what, what service they belong to, to be honest. So you made three trips to Timor in total? Yep, uh, 2000. Uh, then the following year, 2001, we were based at the UN Military Hospital. Uh, but the we had our own airframes at the heliport, and it was a that was a bit busier. Uh, and the Blackhawks were then uh, based down more down near the border, um, so we were doing everything else. Uh, and then after two thousand and one, I went to Bougainville for a six week deployment with the peacekeeping force there. And then in two thousand and four. Uh, I had done 10 years in Port Stephens and um, burnt myself out, had more than uh, time in rural general practice. Uh, by being that guy that couldn't say no, uh, I was just working in practice full time, working in the hospital a couple of days, three or four days a month, plus um, every Tuesday I was working at the RAF base. Um, and uh, I decided I was going to join the Air Force full time and went through and applied and um, in the meantime, a deployment came up starting off in March 2004, which turned out to be fateful in my, my last deployment. Um, it was only supposed to be for four weeks, and it came after I sold my practice and left. So I was uh, no fixed abode at that point. Um, and the Air Force said, well, come over for four weeks, and then we'll work out your transfer to the permanent Air Force during this time. I'd intend to go for four weeks and then take a big long holiday overseas to see some relatives and then come back and join full time. Had my eye on some spots in Darwin, 
whatever. Um, but while I was over there, um, uh, relieving, um, uh, what's it called? Relief out of country, uh, two, two, two week blocks. So I was there for four. The second relief, uh, turned into four months because the person who went away wasn't able to come back. And uh, they said to me, well, look, you've got a contract for four weeks. Do you want to do you want to just go home and we'll find someone else or do you want to stay on? And I said, no, I'm, I'll stay on. That's fine. It wasn't, it was fine. I was relaxed. I was, um, uh, it wasn't the most fun I've ever had uh, on that deployment. We had a partly dysfunctional little team. Uh, we weren't very busy. Um, the... Uh, tempo of our operations was really small. So we had, we're doing one every two or three weeks between the two teams, uh, because we had two doctors, two nurses and me. Um, the team that I joined had already been there for three months. Um, and there was quite a lot of tension within the team. And I, I sort of came in like a big happy Labrador and, uh, just wanted to be everyone's friend. Um, but, was uh, quite happy to be you know, a mediator and uh, uh, friendly. And then I saw some really bad behavior and, and I just, we, we just sort of focused on our job. Um, and uh, so stayed on a bit longer. Um, I think there was considerable problems with burnout and uh, communication and support. Um, it was a very small deployment. The individual who had assumed command of us was an army officer. Um, who was uh, very difficult uh, to work with and for. Um, so um, we tended just to do our own thing a bit and come together when we needed to work and um, and then just retreat to our corners and our rooms. And uh, I uh, made friends with a number of um, civilian doctors who were there on as a volunteer capacity and gave them a bit of help. Um, and uh, there were some social events, and yeah, so we sort of stayed out of this way a bit. Human factors, hey, always the hardest to manage, particularly in an environment where people haven't got enough war going on, and they yeah, there yeah. was yeah, there was all kinds of tensions and petty jealousies and inappropriate leadership, and, and it was yeah, something I choose to try and forget, to be honest. Mm. So tell me about two thousand and four. You were on an AME mission in a Bell 212 chopper, I believe? Yeah, so actually, it was actually the 2nd of June. I was walking in the uh, camp with a colleague and got the phone call that there was a job on. And it was from the uh, ops team at uh, UN base. And they said there was a woman in obstructed labour in a town called Same in... Uh, in the mountains in Dili. It's about 50 miles, 50 kilometres south of Dili, near, near actually the south coast, as a matter of fact. Um, and she was in obstructed labour and we needed to go as a priority one. Um, and uh, off we went. And I'd done quite a lot of these retrievals in previous deployments. I don't think I'd done obstructed labour that deployment. Um, so myself and the nurse, uh, Sharon, jumped in the helicopter uh, that was already turning burning. It was a Bell 212. It was a UN-marked civilian-contracted, piloted, crewed helicopter with a, with a military medical team, uh, Sharon himself. 
there was a civilian loadmaster uh, in the back with me, Greg, uh, who had done previous um, missions with and previous deployments with as well, and two civilian pilots uh, who I know very well, and we socialised together. And so the uh, helicopter was turning and burning by the time I got to the heliport, and we just loaded our gear. Normally, my mission uh, place in the rear, in the seats in the rear, there's five seats in the rear. Normally, my spot was on the far left um, on the port side of the aircraft near the window, and Sharon used to sit next to me. And then there was uh, uh, one of our ventilators, uh, which was strapped down in the middle seat. Then there was a spare seat, and then Greg, the loadmaster, would occupy the far right hand seat. But because we were uh, turning and burning, uh, I just jumped into the middle seat, strapped up, and scale move later, which was, in retrospect, a rash decision that saved my life um, for reasons that become obvious a bit later. Anyway, when we took off from Dilly, um, the weather was fine and clear, and it was just a um, June day, uh, which is the dry season, and we took off and we were heading uh, uh, southwest uh, into the mountains. Pretty soon, uh, there was a huge bank of cloud in front of us, which was blocking our route. Um, but the pilots uh, went above the cloud base, and um, uh, there was discussion about whether we should continue. Um, and um, the decision was eventually made uh, that uh, they would look for um, a way to get in. Um, it turned out to be an aircraft captain's decision, not, not mine. Um, anyway, um, there was, uh, I still remember looking out the window and there was this big hole in the clouds and you could see patches of mountain below us through the, through the it looked like a spider web of cloud. Um, and one of the pilots decided he could get down there. So we were up about six or 8,000 feet and he started to orbit down into this uh, hole. And pretty soon we were, there was a river under us um, and we were uh, navigating by, by um, VFR, visual, um, uh, at treetop level. Uh, and the cloud uh, covered over it on top of us. So there was no way to get back up. Um, and um, I still wasn't that concerned. The, the, the noise in the, the conversation in the cockpit was all very ho-hum and matter-of-fact. Um, but we were definitely at treetop level doing 60 knots, about 120 kilometers an hour, and um, climbed over a ridge. Um, and because I was sitting in the middle seat, I could see through the cockpit what the pilots could see. Um, through a little hole in the bulkhead, um, about as, as wide as my shoulders, perhaps, this hole. And I don't think Sharon could see, and certainly Greg, was his head was looking out the window. Uh, and in fact, he'd opened the door on the right-hand side of the aircraft to be able to help guide the pilots. And he was he was attached to the aircraft by a strop. It was a big, long seatbelt type, type device. Um, anyway, we were coming down the back end of this ridge, still treetop level, um, teeming with rain. And um, I looked through the cockpit at one point and I could see a V-shaped 
gully that we were barreling into with trees sticking out. And I remember thinking to myself idly, I don't reckon I could get my four-wheel drive down this gully, let alone a helicopter with a 15-litre rotor disc. Wow. Um, and at that moment, one of the pilots uh, said over the intercom, brace, 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 and then um, he transmitted mayday, mayday, mayday. Uh, and I thought to myself, uh, this is it. I'm going to die. Uh, and I've reflected on that over the last 19 years now um, because contrary to what a lot of people think, you, life doesn't fly in front of your eyes or anything, on the, or it didn't for me. Um, I can only speak for me. Uh, I had probably two seconds of thought, which was not now. Not now. I had too much... To live for. I hadn't been a dad at that point. I wanted to do a lot of traveling and probably been, hadn't been married. Um, I was single. Uh, I just had this overwhelming sadness and sort of disappointment that I would really only characterize as the words not now, you know. Anyway, uh, no sooner had I thought that than I lost consciousness because uh, I got, I found it later, the um, helicopter had sustained what they call a microburst, which had pushed it down into the trees, microburst of air, um, pushed down the trees, and the rotor disc had been caught up in some tree palm trees and got sucked off, um, and the helicopter had tumbled and rolled without a rotor, um, and must have been the G-forces uh, of consciousness. Um, and I tried to describe to people what it felt like um, but I can't because I was, I was out of it but the bit that I do remember is it's like the world's worst roller coaster I'd, I'd been, I'd been in, in the Hornets and Mackies doing high G air com combat maneuvering with the RAF but it was nothing like that, it was much more violent um, it was a bit like I think I said to someone once, maybe being a tadpole in a can of water and someone shakes it um, must have been like that. Anyway, uh, a short time later, I regained awareness and um, the aircraft was on its side. Uh, the engines were screaming, uh, two, two engines. The uh, right side door was gone. Uh, Greg was gone. And there was droplets of rain coming through the open door space, which then faced upwards, uh, the size of my fist. Um, and the air was blue. Everything was blue, which I reflect on later was uh, told by the crew that it was probably uh, fuel lines leak, uh, leak uh, burst and it was aviation gas, um, which um, was a pretty good incentive to get out of there. Um, and... Um, my first thought was, wow, why did we wreck an aircraft for purposes of training? It was just a weird thought went through my head. Uh, and then I thought, where's Greg? Good on you. You've left me um, for the load master. Um, anyway, I was on my side with a lapsash seatbelt on and um, uh, I undid my seatbelt and fell down 
to the left side of the aircraft. And then I looked at the left side of the aircraft and it was completely stoved in. And if I'd been sitting there, I would have been crushed. Um, it was all our equipment was strewn through the cabin. Uh, the engine was screaming, the pilots were screaming, get out, get out, get out. There was the blue of the aviation fuel, big droplets of water coming through, um, complete sensory overload. Um, and I stood up and stood on something soft, looked down, and it was the nurse. And I'd trodden on, I think it was her leg. Um, so I pulled everything off her, unclipped her microphone cable from her helmet, unstrapped her, and she was unconscious. Uh, so I don't know how I did it. I hefted her over my shoulders and climbed out of the cabin using the seats uh, as rungs for like a ladder. Um, and at any, at any moment, I thought this helicopter was going to explode. Um, and um, I put her on the top of the helicopter, which was the right-hand side, and she started to moan and come round, and I started to climb out. I caught my breath, and I found her deliriously climbing to the rear of the chopper where the engine cowlings are. The engines were still going, and that's about 200 degrees Celsius. Uh, and that all flashed from her head, and so I grabbed her by the scruff of the neck and um, threw her off the helicopter into the mud down below, jumped down next to her and um, picked her up, and we sort of, I sort of ran with her um, out of the area. Um, and uh, as it turned out, we the, the helicopter had crash-landed in somebody's backyard and in this town. Um, and it was jungle and it was bush and there was no nice rockeries or anything. It was just a bit of jungle. Um, so I burst through a wall of trees um, with the nurse and we were wearing our helmets and we had weapons on, we had military uniforms on. And there was a little Tim Reese fellow standing there. I still remember, I can see him in my mind's eye now, with a little pair of black shorts, no shirt, um, and an umbrella. Um, and it turns out his name is Alfonso. Um, and he was standing there with this really puzzled expression on his face. And he must have been thinking, what just happened in my backyard, right? And we came bursting through the trees and uh, I yelled at him, police, police, get the police. It was all I could think of. Um, and he disappeared. He just literally went poof and disappeared. Um, and obviously he went off to get the police uh, to help, help rescue us. Um, but his house, which was like a small hut, was next to us. Next to us, and so I took Sharon in there and lay her down. Um, and for the first time, got a look at her, and she she had an injury to her jaw, which was quite obvious. That she was breathing, and her eyes were open. And um, uh, then one of the pilots came stumbling in, and we we're out of the rain. There was no one else in there. Um, and he said he would look after her. So I went back to the crash site, which was 40, 50 metres away, because I was expecting the damn thing to explode. Um, but by then, the engines had stopped. Um, so I went back, and it was it looked like it was deserted, the crash site. Um, but I went around the back of it um, and found the loadmaster, Greg, lying on his back. And he had, white, he had a white jumpsuit on, uh, and... Between his legs was this huge pool of blood, 
and his head was being cradled by one of the other pilots. Um, I thought he was dead because he was his face was the same color as his jumpsuit. Um, and at that moment, his eyes snapped open and said, "Where the fuck have you been?" Um, all the time, and I said, "I've been helping someone else." And um, I was pleased that he was conscious and able to talk to me. Um, so I jumped back into the helicopter. All I could think of was our gear. I wanted my Thomas pack and stretcher and uh, I found the EPIRB, which was this big yellow plastic thing. And so I activated that and threw it away and then got out of gear and went back out to him. And by then some Timorese villagers had turned up and they helped us load him into the, into the stretcher. And we carried him over towards where Sharon was. Uh, some of them carried her. Um, and I, I was able to make myself understood that I wanted somewhere out of the rain to work on the two patients. Um, and across the field, there was a field next to us, there was a school, turned out to be a school, schoolyard, and there's school buildings in this little village. Uh, looking inside, there was a, a schoolroom with desks and chairs and blackboards and so we went inside out of the rain and I put a number of the desks together and made like a treatment area and and then I realized I had two patients uh, by myself uh, and my back started hurting and my thumb was throbbing it was um, sprained um, the two pilots were doing the best they could but I was the only medical person there um, who was conscious and, and awake and Somebody threw a, put a mobile phone into my hand and it turned out that we had phone reception. So I was able to uh, speak to the uh, UN ops who uh, had heard the mayday. And um, uh, unfortunately, it was, a, it was a fellow that I later apologised to. He was um, Brazilian and his English, his English was not very good. And I told him, get an Australian on the phone because I just didn't, I couldn't cope. So I ended up speaking to a one of our RAF people and described what had happened. And uh, uh, this is this is now about four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, now, when it rains there in Timor, it usually rains till dark. And in the mountains, uh, raining until dark in the mountains with cloud, you're not going to get anyone to come and get you. Um, and it was a good 50 kilometres, probably half a day's trip on by road on uh, muddy tracks. So I thought that I was there for the night because uh, there was going to be no night flying that night. Um, and I had a big sinking feeling. Um, anyway, I started to attend to both the patients. Um, I tried to put a drip in one of the patients and my hands were shaking too much, something I would normally do blindfolded. Um, and uh, I got oxygen on both of them and um, uh, then two... Cuban doctors turned up who were actually in the village and they were the people who called us in for the evacuation for the pregnant woman who I hadn't thought of until that point either, of course. And they didn't speak much English and I didn't speak very good Spanish, but they knew what needed to be done. So I gave them some drip packs and off they went and put drips in and um, stayed with me. Um, uh, and then I was coordinating the review um by phone radio uh and then um i looked around at one point out the door 
and I thought it was hallucinating. My colleague, uh, who's also called Sharon, a doctor, not a patient, uh, was in the doorway. Uh, she was the other paramedical doctor that was in my team. And uh, she had a, a very um, daunted expression on her face and she came tumbling in and they sent two evacuation helicopters to pull us out um, before dusk, um, breaking the clouds. And she said to me, uh, tell me what's happening and then I want you to sit down. Um, so I told her and I said, now look, we haven't got many resources here. You take one patient, I'll take the other. She goes, no, David, shut up and sit down. And uh, so I did. Um, and that's when I really started trembling and um, and, and shaking and um, I had my head down. Uh, somebody handed me a bottle of water um, and I sort of zoned out from what else was going on at that point. And then a really weird thing happened. Um, two of the biggest shoes that I've ever seen in my life stood in front of me. And this huge hand came down on my shoulder and a voice said, you'll be right, mate. And uh, I looked up and there was the largest man I've ever seen in my life in an Australian um, uh, AFP uniform policeman. His name was Steve, standing looking down at me. And apparently he'd been the guy who'd actually been on the phone calling in us to at the request of the Cuban doctors. He was on duty in this town. And he um, he could sort of see that I was a bit of a mess and uh, put his hand on my shoulder and um, did his best to reassure me. Um, uh, and the sight of a really large sort of authoritative person at that point was really nice. And it was, I, I won't deny. Um, anyway, uh, long story short, um, we were able to get the two patients loaded into two helicopters after that. Uh, I was able to escort one, I think it was Greg and Sharon went with the other helicopter with, with the other Sharon and, uh, we got the patients back to the UN military hospital in Dili where the, the Thai army surgeons and anesthetists uh, were ready for us. Um, they did a fantastic job at triaging and treating the urgent stuff. Um, Greg, uh, as it turned out, so he doesn't mind me saying had, um, very severe pelvic injuries and a massive stab wound in his back, which he nearly bled out from. Um, he got sent home to Darwin that night, um, and Sharon the next day. Um, and I sort of stayed on, um, but, a, a really lovely thing happened while I was in the tea room at the hospital, um, with one or two of my friends and colleagues, um, I stank of aviation fuel, my uniform, and I was just sitting there having a cup of tea, um, and in burst the Malaysian four-star general who was in charge of all the UN operations in Timor. Um, I'd only seen him from a distance in, in the past, but this guy was, had a whole chest full of medals and an unfamiliar uniform, but, and he was about five foot nothing. Um, but he came in and he said, where's the doctor that was in the crash? And I said, oh, that's, that's me, sir. And he just came over and gave me a great big hug. It was really cute. And uh, he just said, I'm glad you're okay. And he just, he literally, it was one of those awkward long hugs too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, you know, when I can't remember how long, but, uh, he said, I'm just really glad you're okay. And I said, I'm sorry, I'll put aviation fuel on your uniform. So, um, and then he, uh, went on to do other things. So 
that was that was that night and uh it i can remember it as vividly now 19 years later as if it was yesterday uh, i can tell you the number of branches on the trees in the gully uh, as i saw through the canopy uh, as we before we crashed i could tell you where the pilot's hands were it's all very very much seared into my sense mm. yeah a massive trauma response, I would imagine. Just, <laughs> yeah, a hypervigilant, yeah. but then having a ability to try and treat and you're injured yourself at this time. Mm. Yeah. Sharon and Greg both recovered from their injuries eventually after a prolonged hospital stay and some surgeries in Australia. So yeah. it is a story with a good outcome and surprising mm. really that nobody died. And well, as you said, if you'd been in that other seat, you may not have uh, made it. Well, that's right. And uh, we shouldn't forget the, the pregnant woman um, because the baby did die um, and she was taken off in the other chopper that I wasn't on um, with the other patient. Um, and the baby didn't make, probably didn't make it before we got there either. So that was obstructive labours, uh, as you probably know, if you're, if you're a midwife. Um, but uh, so someone did die that day. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't uh, one of the crew. Um, and uh, it was, yeah, it was a pretty close run, run thing. I was offered the opportunity to leave, uh, to be fair. But um, my back was sore, but I felt like I could do things. Uh, my finger was a bit swollen. I could do things. Uh, and my time was supposed to end in about three weeks after that anyway. And, um, uh, so I, I uh, stayed on, and I remember the next day um, being um, cleared off flight duties, uh, just walking around my civvies, and um, I had this sense of invincibility uh, that nothing could touch me. And I remember walking along a fence, like a tightrope walker. I jumped up on this fence. I tried to pick up our, our corporal medic, uh, completely stupid thing. And it was part of the stress reaction that people get after an incident like that, I've been told later. Um, and in fact, the following week, we did another mission, um, and I was lucky enough to be on duty that time, um, down to Akusi, which is 90 minutes flying time away. It's a part of East Timor that's stuck in West Timor in an enclave. And you actually have to fly out into international airspace to get to it because the Indonesians wouldn't let us use their airspace even for an AMA. And in fact, they used to paint our aircraft with anti-air radar just for fun, apparently. But we went down to pick up uh, a woman who had eclampsia. So another local who was actually seizing and um, yeah. I didn't have any magnesium or anything with me. So I just sedated her and bagged her, literally bagged her all the way back to to Dili. Fortunately, mm. on the way down, I was quite tense because we were flying over water. And by, already by then, some of my um, thoughts had strayed to the what I call the what ifs, you know, what if the crash had occurred in water? What if we caught fire? You know, what if um, we died? You know, what if one of us had died? Um, and the, the what ifs uh, about water were the worst, because as you know, when a helicopter goes into water, it goes head down and uh, sinks pretty rapidly as we've seen the rest, uh, tragically. 
Um, and so I was pretty nervous, uh, even though I'd done that route a few times before. Um, but on the way back, I was pretty busy with this woman, so I didn't really think much about it. Um, and it was good to do one more mission after that. Um, it was kind of like getting back on, on the horse after it throws you. And a couple of days after that, uh, I went to the UN, uh, the Dili National Hospital where we, deli- we deposited this lady. Um, and uh, we found her and she came over to me and kissed my hand, um, which according to the Timorese people is a sign of respect. Um, so she, she must have recognised me, um, even though she was in and out of seizures. The baby was fine. So there was a little bit of pleasure, redemption uh, about that um, and feeling like I'd done a, an actual mission where it hadn't gone wrong as well. Uh, involving so yeah. that was my last you nervous getting back in that helicopter though I was. yeah 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 I was. how could you not be after what you've just been through yeah yeah and every time i've been in a chopper since as well yeah and even, in fact uh one of my triggers was um the smell of aviation fuel uh, and crunching of metal um it, it brings a really involuntary visceral response have you had to do Hewitt or any other AME training since? No. Well, see, after 2004, um, a number of things happened uh, after the crash, and I decided that I didn't want to join the Air Force full-time after that. Um, and at that time, coincidentally, they brought in compulsory Hewitt training. It wasn't compulsory before that. Um, and... Um, I jokingly said to um, the Chief of Air Force Health at the time, do I really have to do it anyway? Because I've sort of done it for real. Um, and she said, yes, David, you do. But um, anyway, as it turned out, um, uh, I got out a few years later anyway. Um, and in retrospect, it was, I, I had symptoms of fairly florid PTSD anyway at the time. Yeah. Mm. So how did you feel initially coming home? And at what point did you pick up that you weren't okay? Obviously, as a doctor, you treated patients with PTSD prior, but how did you recognise those symptoms creeping in yourself or did you? Um, and additionally, my dad probably had PTSD, although it was never diagnosed. He was a World War II veteran uh, for the British military. Yeah. And he, in retrospect now, never diagnosed. Uh, he almost certainly had PTSD with new variations and flashbacks and things but um before i went to timor the very first time in january 2000 my surgery my practice was opposite nelson bay rsl and about two weeks before i went uh, so summertime holiday time nelson bay very busy lovely weather um the i was in my office with a patient and my receptionist said you we need to come out here now there's a there's a young guy here that's in a mess so I finished seeing my patient and got this young guy in and it turned out that he had um, walked into the front door of Nelson Bay RSL across the road and sat down and started crying. And uh, he was like 22, 23. Um, and he had been in the first push to, to Timor. <clears throat> he was an infantry soldier, private, and um, 
he'd seen some pretty horrific things, people getting electrocuted on fences and uh, dead bodies in wells and all sorts of things. Anyway, he'd done his three months and come home um, without, according to him, any kind of debrief or screening or anything. So he uh, did the only thing you do in Australian summertime. He took himself off to the beach. He wasn't even from Nelson Bay, so he just took himself a holiday town. And in his words, all the noise had stopped. So uh, no one was yelling at him to get his uniform right and his weapon cleaned and the banter with his mates. It was just this beautiful piece of the beach in Australian seaside hollow town. And then the memories all came flooding back. So he was alone in the town and um, completely unprepared for what tsunami hit him um, and went into what was the closest thing to a military facility he could find because it's got a cannon out the front, this RSL, sat in the front foyer and started crying. And um, so that was actually my first exposure to um, severe acute PTSD. I mean, I'd seen a few Vietnam vets uh, as patients. Uh, one local policeman was a Vietnam vet and we talked about it a bit. So that was very real. And that was only two weeks before I went on my first tour. Um, now, in answer to your question about when I came back in 2004, um, do you know what? It didn't really feel like I had anything wrong with me. From the inside, it didn't feel like anything wrong with me. And it's, it's a bit embarrassing to say that, but I'm not my own doctor. I've got someone else for that. Um, and at that point, I didn't have another doctor. It was, it was just me and I was in transit. And pretty soon I jumped on a plane. I was in Hawaii on a holiday by myself. Um, my sleep habits were erratic. Um, I had very short concentration span. Um, I was restless. I couldn't do anything. But I still didn't recognise it. Then I got another plane and went to Toronto, Canada, where my first cousin lives, and I'm very close with him. Um, and he said, David, you're not right. Something's wrong, Nicholas. And um, I said to him, oh, I'm fine. What do you know? Nothing. You know, I went on another trip, uh, went down to South America, um, and I had my first panic attack um, on a bus in the Andes, wedged up against a window, looking mm. down a 3,000-foot drop on a cliff edge. Um, and it all came a flooding back at that point because I couldn't get out. It was, it was the the bus was jam-packed um, and it still didn't register. Um, I was short in my mood. I couldn't tolerate things. Anyway, I came back to Australia and didn't know what to do um, and decided I would um, uh, enrol in uh, being a specialist in emergency medicine. So I went right back to the start and worked in a hospital in Sydney and started the emergency medicine training program because in my head, as a doctor, what I wanted to do was upskill myself because this incident was going to happen again. Something was going to happen again that was not of my control and I was going to be ill-equipped or less equipped than I wanted to be um, in a situation where it was all going to be about on me. I was going to be the one of sole responsibility for managing two sick people. So I wanted to be the very best I could possibly be and just push through and push through and push through. And that led to doing the emergency medicine specialist training program for the next uh, 12 years or whatever it was uh, until I finished it and hated it. 
And it was it was a very dysfunctional hospital with a lot of um, difficult personalities. And plus, I was intolerant as well because uh, I had short moods. Um, and then one day in 2013, so nine years after the crash, I was having dinner with my cousin here, different cousin, and uh, here in my house in Sydney. Uh, and my best mate, Andrew, who's now, now an ex-military doctor, um, and um, everything was fine. Uh, and I went off to the toilet and I just said, I'll see you guys in a sec. Went into the toilet, which was dark, before I flicked on the uh, light. And my cousin said, see you in a sec, darling. And the word darling, it turns out, is a trigger for me. Because at that moment, I had a powerful and massive flashback. Because apparently, when I was pulling the nurse out of the helicopter, over my shoulder, I was saying to her, and I don't remember this, I was saying to her, let's get out of here, darling. I'm going to get you out of here, darling. We're going getting out of here, darling. Right. Now, I have no idea why I said that. I wasn't particularly close to this nurse. Um, uh, it was completely wrong time to be that unfamiliar with someone, but it just came out of my mouth, right? Um, but the word short-circuited something in my head. And I sat down in that room and I was there. I was back in Timor. I was in the chopper. I was sweating. Uh, I, I had the full sensory um, experience of the smell, the taste of the aviation fuel in my mouth, uh, the sounds. Um, I felt a bit nauseous. Uh, I was breathing rapidly. And I must have been in there a while because uh, my mate Andrew tapped on the door and said, you okay in there? Um, and I thought he was trying to be funny because he usually is. Um, and I opened the door and told him what had happened. Um, and he said, you've just had a flashback, right? He said, you've got it. And so then I had to deal with that. And gee whiz, you know, mm. I don't reckon that was the first time something similar had happened. Um, I'd certainly been to airports and smelled aviation fuel before and had a reaction. I'd heard car accidents or and had the hackles. And um, I had to face the reality that um, as big and tough as I thought it was, um, this was way out of my control. Um, uh, I'd been a pretty, uh, pretty uh, elite level runner. Before that, I'd been a karate instructor. I'd been a military officer. Um, so I thought that I was pretty um, tough, um, even at the age of 38, which is this when this happened. No, 40. 40 uh, no, it was 45. Um, but this was completely out of my control. I could not control this. And, and that's very confronting for someone. Um, and um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to, to come on your show because that degree of loss of control uh, in my experience treating soldiers and veterans who have PTSD and also non-military people, particularly men, where they mm. um, can't control what's going on is incredibly confronting and 
disempowering and um, difficult. Worse for me because I was a bloody doctor and I should know better, right? Um, anyway, I had been case conferencing with a psychiatrist uh, in town here with my, some of my patients. I've been doing a job with the military at the point as a civilian. And I spoke to him one day and said, listen, um, I've had this experience. This is the bit of the background. He said, uh, come and talk to me. So he spent the best part of um, two weekend days um, assessing it. And uh, then he got um, myself and my wife in and said, David, you've got PTSD. Uh, and this is what it is. This is what happens. Um, and he set the ground rules. It was really nicely done. He set the ground rules and said, I'm here to explain to you. You're a patient. Just like Sharon had done when she arrived at the crash site, said, David, sit down and shut up, um, which was the right thing to do. Um, and, and he explained to me and explained to my wife and explained and, and explained a lot of my behaviour. I think it explained um, some of the uh, bad choices I'd made after that in terms of career. Um, I already had two fellowships in medicine and then went for a third in emergency medicine, um, which I didn't need. Because um, you didn't want to stay still and have those thoughts come back. In hindsight, you were just filling every minute of your day with an intellectual, physical challenge. Well, yeah, so that... but it was also the part of the hypervigilance uh, because I was, I was preparing for the next disaster that was going to be on me to fix, right? So obviously seeing the psych and recognising it, was that the catalyst to then recovery for you? It was. It was remarkable. Um, I had a short course of some medication, but um, he did a form of therapy which you may have heard of well before uh, called EMDR, uh, I'm, I'm an association response, um, desensitization response, where, um, and it's one of the two types of therapy internationally that has been, has got some evidence behind it for working for PTSD. And so for, for those listeners who don't know, can I, I just describe a session? Um, so he sits you down a room and you close your eyes and he sits in front of you and he describe he gets you to intimately describe an incident whatever your thing is where you had a trauma a near-death experience for me it was looking through that bulkhead at the cockpit window and you keep talking in intimate detail about things going on until you get some kind of visceral reaction something and for me it was and nausea right and at that point he gets you to stop open your eyes and he gets you to watch his fingers moving backwards and forwards in front of you, which brings your brain back to right here now. So it sucks you right out of the incident memory back to here. And he tells you that was a memory. It's not going to hurt you. This is now. And um, typically for patients, uh, it can take um, many sessions or sometimes months of therapy, but it's quite potent. Quite, it doesn't work for everyone, but it's quite powerful. Some patients will feel sick or throw up or because the, the trigger. And the way I mm -hmm. think of PTSD is critical incident, 
near-death experience that sears the memory hardwired into your brain and then anything that is even remotely close to that a sound a smell a taste a, a note a, in me a word apparently actually short circuits it short circuits it and because your brain is poised and ready to act in response to anything similar all of a sudden you're back there and um what mdr does is just break that bond and um stops you from making that connection and the most amazing thing that happened to me after a few sessions and it was a relatively short period of treatment for me i mm. realized that i'd had for nine years this video that had been going on in my head virtually non-stop just on a reel over and over and over and over and always in the background like bloody elevator music um that you're sometimes aware of and sometimes not, but it was always governing what it did. And it was the crash uh, and stuff around yeah. it. Um, and doing this treatment was like someone had got a big fat finger and pressed stop on the video. It just stopped. I was free of it. It was remarkable. Um, it felt like I could take breath again. I could think about other things. I could indulge in pleasurable activities. I could do things that weren't governed by being prepared for another crash or whatever. Um, and people said that my mood had improved and I was less of an irritable shit. Um, um, and it was quite remarkable enough that um, it slowly dropped away, the, the symptoms and the responsiveness. Um, I can now go to airports and smell aviation fuel or get in a small plane, doesn't bother me, even turbulent planes and now I have to do a bit of traveling for work in small aircraft and that doesn't worry me anymore. Um, uh, I remember just at the time I started therapy, I took my family to go and see that movie Sully about Sullenberger, the guy, the pilot that crashed the plane into the Hudson. And I had a fair dinkum panic attack um, and squeezed my little son's hand too much till he complained um, at the crash scene. Um, I can now watch things about chopper crashes and it doesn't, it doesn't bother me anymore. So it took a long time, but it, it was a, the whole incident that the, 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 the um, realization that I had this condition as a doctor and as a self-judged tough guy um, was, was very confronting and um, definitely nature put me in my place right there. And it really highlights to other people, and thank you for being so brave in sharing your story, how high-functioning you can be with PTSD and, you know, actually Absolutely. you're not okay. Just so. on that point, um, I'll tell you a little story about a patient I saw a few years ago who was a drone pilot and um, tough guy in his late 40s, uh, Army Warrant Officer, had been everywhere, done it, had done a lot of drone piloting work in uh, the Middle East. Um and when he got out, he had very, very bad PTSD from seeing things in high definition in, on his screen. He mm -hmm. either did or witnessed. Yep. And he lived up uh, uh, the Central Coast, this guy, and um, lived by himself. And for about two years after he discharged from the army, I used to go and do home visits on him to give him medications, talk to him and make sure he was okay, which was a bit above and beyond because it was like a half day. 
outing two hour drive each way for me but anyway he um very rarely went out of the house um and he had quite nice supportive neighbors um and the first time i went to the place where he lived across the road was waterfront was river and i didn't know which one was his house but then instantly i worked it out because it was the house that had the perfect lawn all the plans were aligned properly um the house was perfectly painted the car was parked just so the car was perfectly groomed you know what i mean yeah anyway um he never went out of the house he got his food and everything else delivered um and uh a year or so later there had been floods in that area and according to his neighbor who was who was a support person for him uh this fellow um because uh, the the road that was the single road in and out of this uh, community flooded uh, to a height of about a meter. Um, so this person, who I won't name, um, took it upon himself. He came out of the house as the moment need, uh, was needing him, and he got his tinny and he was evacuating elderly people from their homes. He moved backwards and forwards. He put a picket on the road the top of the road into the facility because tourists were coming in and bringing cars in and which would be like a bow wave and swamping people's houses. Mm -hmm. so he put a picket up there and stop people coming in and he rescued people he brought food to people as soon as the water receded he went back to his home was the positive scene again mm. so that's ptsd so he yeah you got it so he he needed to be high functioning he cometh the moment cometh the man as they say poor woman but he he um when the when the challenge came he was out but when when normal world was happening he was nowhere to be found he was suffering inside yeah chose to withdraw but mm. could do it if need be yeah so it's really good segue tell me about your work in the veteran health space since because you're wearing a couple of hats at the moment and using your own personal experience to help other people yeah so um that was one of the other reasons I wanted to come on the show. And, and that is that um, as health professionals, we're told to set boundaries in the way we have uh, a professional relationship with our patient. Um, you can share details and bits and pieces, but if you're, if you're too familiar or you share too much, um, your experiences can become their experiences and it can alter the relationship between the patient and the, and the health professional, whether you're a doctor, nurse, dentist, whatever. Um, but I found that carefully, selectively uh, managing with the right people, the fact that I'd had a near-death experience without too much details and being careful not to stimulate theirs <laughs> something similar allowed me to connect with people who were not at that point connecting with the medical world part of the, the problem with ptsd is this particularly with military people is this idea that they just carry on regardless they soldier on they keep moving they don't stand still they um they, they keep carrying this burden and they keep their mission focused and they um, want to and, and to, and to understand that they've got an illness is quite confronting for them. So 
carefully selecting patients um, where I think that's the case um, allows them to understand that the um, physician in front of them has had something out of the ordinary as well and that there is help available. There is someone who understands. There is um, There are treatments available um, and just connects more than anything else. Um, and I don't definitely don't go on wearing it on my sleeve and I don't have any pictures around the place of the crash or anything. Um, and I don't make that the thing, the trap you can do with trauma or anything really is think that your experiences are everyone's uh, because trauma by definition is different for everyone. Um, people have different experiences, different uh, stories, different backgrounds, different coping mechanisms, different supports. So what happened to me won't be the same as what happens to someone else. It's a bit like bringing up a kid. You know, your experience of child rearing may not be the same as someone next to you. Mm-hmm. But um, it is very helpful to allow people to connect with you. And um, the number of veterans that I've had, and not just veterans, I might add, um, who say uh, that you, you sort of get it, don't you, Doc? Um, and I say, yeah, I do. You know, when when this happens, you do this, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, or mm. uh, you won't go out in um, places where it's noisy. No, uh, you always sit at the back of the restaurant facing the door. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing that has helped me is that um, people who present to us the health, in the health field who have a condition, it might be they're called an alcoholic or they're a drug addict or they're, they're just an arsehole, uh, they're difficult to deal with or um, they're depressed. Um, I can't tell you the number of people where it's never been asked what their trauma was. Hmm. Um, and it's often not one trauma. Um, and it's often that they've had childhood trauma of some sort, then they've joined defence or the emergency services, and then they've had another trauma. So they're not what I call, and this is only my term, they, they don't come into defence as emotional virgins where everything's perfect and pristine. They come in with some sort of pre-existing tendency or something broken but you know, they're high functioning and on top of that they have um, a, a, a life-threatening experience mm. uh, so I like to and I've briefed some of my reception staff because some of the veterans that come see me can be difficult cranky or irritable or don't meet your eye or don't turn up something I've briefed some of my staff that some of these people are that's their condition all right um so my mum always used to say it's more important why people are doing things rather than what they're doing. So if someone's a cranky asshole, maybe it's worth thinking, well, maybe they've got reason to rather than they're just a cranky asshole, you know. Yeah, just a symptom of what's happening. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you've also been involved in lobbying government mm. uh, for DBA specific training for GPs and rural remote generalists. Yep. 
what's that involved? Yeah, so uh, so my cl- in answer to your question before, my, my clinical practice is is is, suburb- is is urban general practice, even though I'm, I'm sort of trapped in the city at the moment, even though I'm rural, but uh, very heavily weighted towards veterans. I see a lot of veterans um, uh, for ongoing care, but also claims and that kind of thing. Um, and um, that's three and a half, four days a week. And then um, the other role that I've got at the moment is Director of Training for um, New South Wales ACT for the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine. And that's uh, the second uh, of two um, specialist colleges that uh, qualify GPs to be specialist GPs. Ours uh, uh, trains people with what are called rural generals, which is what technically I am. So they're, they're GPs with advanced skills in a particular discipline that can cope better in rural environments where there's less um, other doctors or other health professionals around. Uh, so my area of expertise was um, emergency medicine. Some of my colleagues are GP obstetricians or anaesthetists or um, uh, mental health people. Uh, so we've got uh, uh, about 300 trainees in New South Wales at the moment I'll give or take the number, um, where we are uh, delivering education and training and uh, guide them through posts that take them to be qualified as GPs uh, in the country as opposed to the city where I am. Um, And a couple of weeks ago, I I appeared in front of the Royal Commission uh, at their request um, for um, advice on how, what recommendations the Royal Commission could make to better prepare GPs who are the front face of medicine. They're the, what we call primary care, often the first um, mm-hmm. contact uh, and ongoing contact with patients uh, or what we call incremental care. So we're, we're the ones that are around all the time. We're a specialist dive in and out. Um, how the Royal Commission could make recommendations to improve um, uh, general practitioners around the country, urban or rural, to look after veterans. Um, so this came about because in 2021, the census showed that there's about 680,000, uh, it's around about 600,000, I think, um, veterans, people who identify as a bit, being a veteran in the country. Unfortunately, DBA and uh, Department of Defence actually don't keep numbers and they don't track reservists after they discharge and it's pretty loosely tracking full-timers as well. Um and by DBA's own stats, they've only got about 210 or 220,000 what they call clients, um, which annoys me because we're veterans. Um, they've only got 220,000 clients on their books, whereas we know there's about 600, 650,000 veterans. So that means there's about 100,000 people who aren't engaging. And there's various reasons for that. There'll be people who don't want to engage, don't need to engage, or can't engage. So in 2021, uh, myself, uh, Dr. Andrew Clark, and some other people from the College of Rural and Remote Medicine um, created a, uh, the first ever um, GP primary care course uh, to assist um, doctors uh, to understand the needs of veterans. Now, this is not simply how to navigate the DBA system. Because DVA is basically an insurance firm, okay? They don't own Veterans Health. The doctors own Veterans Health and the patients own Veterans Health. So um, 
DVA would, would have an input, but it would be uh, from subject matter experts. It would be from other GPs, um, GPs who've had experience with it, like myself and others, lots of others. There's lots of others who've had experience like this. And uh, it would be the first one in the world. Um, uh, we surveyed our members, the College of Rural Medicine, and it was really surprising the result. They, uh, our members felt that they all saw veterans around the country. Uh, they understood that veterans had specific health needs. Um, and they felt very uh, uninformed on how to deal with veterans specifically. There's plenty of courses on um, dermatology and you can, do, you can do Aboriginal health courses, but not veterans. Right? Mm. Um, so we put that course to uh, the um, then Liberal government's ministers who all loved it, apparently. Um, and then they lost the election uh, before we got funding, which wasn't going to be very much in terms of cost, to roll out this course. The current government still hasn't been very receptive to it. Um, and um, we are very hopeful that the uh, Royal Commission will make that um, uh, recommendation, yeah. Yeah, such important work to just keep on pushing for that, for people that have served their country, be it in defence or even, as you mentioned, the emergency services to get the support they need when they're, when they're at home. Even, yeah. even hospital staff uh, yeah. encounter people who maybe um, have drug um, problems or mental health problems. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen not just veterans but people who've got significant trauma histories where it's just been not picked up because no one's asked. Yeah, and no, no. we're not across that trauma-informed no. care that we should be. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your experiences and for your work in the veteran health space and thank you for your service. Thank you for your interest. You're welcome.